Isn't it great to see our kids helping out leading worship this morning? Well, that was enthusiastic. Are y'all awake? Yeah. All right. I'm telling you, I think it is a wonderful thing to see children growing up, learning to fear the Lord. We say that in a way that means to worship Him with their lives, to, um, to tremble at His presence in a good way, to love Him more than anything. We're, uh, we're seeing them from an early age understand what it is to follow Him. And uh, this standing in the choir loft, even though some of them weren't really standing at all, were they, uh, is, is good because it is teaching them. It is teaching them what it is to, to worship God above all other things. And isn't it good to see children go through the baptismal pool this morning? Amen. And that uh, we praise God for, for uh, moving in the lives of Debbie and Campbell. If you would, take your Bibles this morning and open to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, and we'll look at verses 1 through 12 this morning. Before I read the text, I want you to know um, that I deal with a subject this morning that is a hard subject. It is a tough subject. It's one that I don't really particularly like having to preach. In fact, I have spent most of the week uh, in fear and trepidation at this text. Because the, the subject this morning is divorce. Divorce and remarriage. Now, the great thing is, I'm going to preach this, and then I'm getting out of town. <laughs> I'm going on vacation. Um, but I want you to know, just before we ever touch it, I want you to hear my heart. Um, as your pastor, uh, the last thing that I want to do is to add more guilt to you, is to add unnecessary guilt to you, and to add any any condemnation, any condemning spirit to you. That is the last thing I want to do today. So hear that up front. But if there were a next to last thing that I would not want to do, it would be to shy away from passages in Scripture because they're hard. And I don't think you want that either. I think you, I think I've gotten to know you enough to know that you want to hear the Word of God regardless of what it says. So this morning I want you to know that this is not pointed at anybody. This is not uh, me up here spewing what I think. I'm simply going to walk through the text and we're going to do everything we can to get to the very heart of the text. Can we do that? Is that, is that okay? Is everybody at ease now? Glad you are because I'm still not. All right? Um, I come though the power of the Spirit of God. Um, I grew up in a home where this August, my parents will celebrate 41 years of marriage. Um, not, they weren't previously married to anybody else, been, uh, been married uh, almost 41 years, and uh, grew up in that home, and it wasn't perfect. I mean, there was some yelling and some screaming and all sorts of things that went on. Uh, my dad was sort of distant and that sort of thing, but I grew up in this, this home where my parents were married the entire time. My wife... Um, grew up in a home that was a little different. My wife grew up in a home. She was raised on a farm. And uh, her mom and dad divorced when she was 16 years old. They remarried when she was 17 years old. And they divorced again when she was 18 years old. And uh, we, we kind of, we chuckle at that. But you think about what that would have been like to go through in your sophomore, junior, and senior year of high school. Um, 
And so this is a serious topic. And this morning, I'm not going to do it, but I want you to sort of just picture in your mind, if I were to ask everyone in the room who has either been divorced, whose parents have been divorced, or whose children have been divorced, to stand, I want you just to think in your mind how many people in the room would stand. This is not a topic that is still in the place that it once was. It used to be back in... 60s and 70s growing up and, and prior to that, that um, people got married and stayed married. But nowadays, it's not the case like it once was. And so I, I want us to see this as a very, very, very present subject. And I don't really have to say anything more because most of you are sitting in the room and I had you when I said divorce. Okay, because you know how it applies to you. So without anything further, let's go to the text this morning. Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to this portion of your word. And God, it is not an easy subject to deal with. I have many, many friends in this congregation who this impacts personally. My own wife has been a product of this. So God, I pray that in the preaching of this text, God, that you would not allow me to cause further injury that is undue. But God, that you would speak very plainly, very boldly as we walk through this text. And God, that you would let us hear, you would cause us to hear the things that we need to hear, and God, that we would dismiss from our minds the things that are not from you, but are from this weak servant. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We come upon this scene, and Jesus here is continuing to disciple his disciples. He is continuing to walk through with them what they will need He's building in them, making them disciples, so that when He leaves, they will be ready. We have come through some very intense passages. We have come through the passage where He talked about, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. By the way, two weeks ago or three weeks ago, whenever that was, I preached on that text. Uh, we had a child in our, in our midst that had to leave because she, she became scared over that. We're not talking about a literal cutting off of the hands. It's, it's, uh, it's a metaphor there. But he's going through this radical teaching. And he wants his disciples to get this 
radical stuff that they will need when he leaves. He will not always be there. In fact, when we see in the first part of this section when it says that he left there and went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, it is decidedly toward Jerusalem that he is going. He is headed toward the cross. And he is not turning back. He will not turn around. We have entered that part of his life where he is making this voluntary march toward the cross. No one will take his life. He will lay it down. And he's headed that way. And he wants them to get what they need to get. Well, here it doesn't take us long in this section to again find the Pharisees trying to trap him. They have made this a pattern. They have, throughout Jesus' ministry, been following him everywhere that he goes, even through wheat fields. Wherever he goes, they are right there dogging his every step, hoping that he will slip up, that they can trap him, and that they can be gone with him. And here we find them doing this exact same thing. Matthew sheds light on their question. When they ask the question here in Mark, can a man divorce his wife? Matthew includes in his telling of this account, Matthew says that Jesus said, or that they said, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? And this gives us a clue as to what it is that they are after here. They are wanting to know a very specific answer to a question. But they want to trap him. And there's two possible agendas in what they're trying to do when they're trying to trap him. Number one is they, at the very least, they want to damage his popularity with the people at large and particularly with at least a couple of sects of, uh, of, of the Pharisees or the rabbis. Number one, he, to damage his popularity with the masses. Since the scriptures were not commonly accessible to the people. The people were reliable on the interpretation of the rabbis. The people, they had not been schooled in the different languages. They didn't have access to, uh, to the writings. They couldn't go down to Christian Supply or to Lifeway and just pick up another Bible at will. They, they weren't, there, there were no Gideons out on the street corners just handing out copies of the Word of God. They were dependent very much so on the rabbis of the day to interpret what particular passages meant. Well, there was a debate brewing over one particular passage back in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I want to read it to you. Hang with me. This is all going somewhere. This is the passage that was in debate. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 says, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts, her, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is, is an abomination before the Lord. Now, the debate between these two schools of rabbis was over these two little words in the midst of Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, some indecency. What did it mean when it said that if a man finds his wife undesirable because of some indecency in her? He could give her a certificate of divorce. What does that mean? Well, there were two schools of thought. 
uh, Rabbi Shemai, he interpreted that to mean that it was adultery. If he came home one day and found his wife fooling around with someone else and he caught her in the act of adultery, if he, if he found out that she was, quote, running around on him, then that was the grounds here that Moses had allow, allowed for and he could give her a certificate of divorce. But some were saying this couldn't possibly mean adultery because the Old Testament punishment for adultery was execution. It was death. And so they said, Rabbi Shammai, wouldn't that be a cool name to have if you were a rabbi? Rabbi Shammai, you know, that would be cool to have. They would say, Rabbi Shammai, this can't be what you're saying because if a woman is caught in adultery, they would simply stone her, not hand her a certificate of divorce. So that opened the door for the more liberal rabbis of the day who would say things like, what Rabbi Hillel said. He was the most popular rabbi of the day. He had huge followings and people listened to him in droves. His interpretation of some indecency in the wife was basically anything. Anything the man found undesirable, he could divorce his wife over. He could write her a certificate of divorce without going through any court system. He could simply write her a certificate of divorce, put it in her hand, say, get out of my house and move on. And he specifically outlines in some of the extra-biblical writings what he means by anything. For instance, he says, if the wife burns the meal, write her a certificate of divorce. If she speaks negatively about your mother, write her a certificate of divorce. If while she's out in public, she happens to twirl around and the hem of her garment raises just enough to show off her ankles in public, write her a certificate of divorce. Now women, wives in the room, how many of you, based on those criteria, would still be married today? <laughs> and so you see the two extremes here, that there's one who is saying, no, it has to be the case of adultery. The other school says no for anything. She burns supper, get rid of her. There's, another, there's plenty of fish in the sea is what they would say. So at the very least, when they come to Jesus and they say to him, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? They're hoping that he will put himself on one side or the other and he will alienate himself from at least one school or the other. So they're trying here to divide the rabbis over him. But also, I think they already knew what he would say. Back in Matthew 5, he had specifically spoken about this and said, unless she is guilty or the, the party is guilty of adultery, you are not to divorce. And so they knew what he was going to say. So I think they're hoping that he will speak against Rabbi Hillel, who is the most popular. And not only will he alienate that school, but he will also alienate all the people that are following and listening to that. He, they want him to speak directly counter to culture of the day. Well, there's a second reason why they're wanting to trap him. And you wouldn't find this unless you pay attention to the geography here. Geography is important when you are reading and studying Scripture. It says here that when he left there, he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. 
We know from other sources that he was specifically in Perea. That he is in Perea at this moment. Well, you say, what's the big deal about that? The big deal was Perea was part of the territory that was governed by Herod Antipas. You say, well, again, what's the big deal with that? If you'll remember, Herod Antipas was the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. Well, what's the big deal with that? John the Baptist was beheaded because he was publicly speaking out against Herod Antipas marrying his brother's wife after divorcing his own. He was, John the Baptist was out in the open, out in the public square saying, Herod, it is unlawful for you to have Herodias as your wife because she belongs to your brother and you have divorced your first wife to take her. And if you remember the story, the girl comes in, dances, and, and uh, Herod says, I'll give you anything you want. She says, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And they chop his head off and bring it in. And so I think what the Pharisees are trying to do, a second thing they're trying to do here is possibly in the particular region that they are in, they want Jesus to publicly speak out against divorce and word of it to get back to Herod so that maybe this Jesus will meet the same fate that John the Baptist met. You see it? This is what they are trying to do. They are trying to trap him. They are trying to at least let him lose popularity and maybe they'll get lucky and have him executed in the process. They already had a hunch of what he would say. They were hoping that he would trap himself. Let me just say on a side note that while there are none of you that are in here wearing rabbinical robes this morning, there are none of you in here that would say that you are a modern-day Pharisee. The church has been filled for at least three or four decades now with people that have done exactly what these rabbis are trying to do. They are trying to use divorce as a trap. There are people all across America who have stopped going to church, stopped being a part of a church family because when they went through their divorce, the church shunned them. And there are also, on the other side of that, there are people who have gone through divorce and are using their divorce as a crutch as to why they are not in church. They are also using it as a trap. And both are wrong. And we need to stop that. As a church, as your pastor, what we need to do is we need to come alongside those who have been divorced and help them to get back on their feet. Help them to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. We should be a source of encouragement and hope rather than a source of shunning and judgment. Amen? We should not be like the Pharisees. So, we find the Pharisees here, the rabbis here, trying to trap him. The Pharisees trying to trap him as they always did. What does Jesus do? Jesus points them back to the Scriptures. In verses 3 and 4, he says, Well, what did Moses command you? You know, I almost picture Jesus that way, just sort of shrugging his shoulders and saying, You're the Pharisees. This has been spoken on. What did Moses say? Well, they say, well, Moses, Moses allowed us to give a certificate of divorce to his wife. 
Jesus here points them back to the scriptures. And I think it is important because Jesus, in this sort of teaching within the teaching, Jesus shows us that on these hard issues, on every issue, but on these hard issues in particular, the Bible is our authority. And we are not to get wrapped up in what Rabbi so-and-so says or what Rabbi so-and-so says. We are not to follow man or even our own interpretation, but we are to stick to what the Word of God says. It is our authority. And too often we become enamored with a certain teacher and become dependent or rely too heavily on what they think. And the reality is, Christian, hear me on this. The reality is that if you are here today and you are a blood-bought believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and your sins have been washed away, the Spirit lives inside of you. Behold, the old is gone, the new has come. And you have the Word of God and you have the Spirit of God and you can go to the Word of God and trust it and trust the Holy Spirit to be your teacher. And the reality is that we have gotten so stinking dependent on teachers. We have teachers everywhere we turn. I have six preset buttons on my car radio. I can fill all six of them with Christian radio stations. Only two of them play music all the time. Four of those are teaching. You can turn on... Cable television, direct TV, dish TV, you can turn it on and you can go to a channel block and you can find about 10 or 12 channels probably that are all preaching all the time. You could drive within a 10 mile radius and probably go to at least 100 churches. Not to mention the internet. I carry around, when I exercise, I have, I have my iPod. And on my iPod, I have no music. Teenagers would pick that up and go, yeah, that's what we thought, you know. <laughs> you know, that's what we figured it was like that. I have no music. What I do have on my, op- on my iPod is 1,000 sermons. And those are only from about 10 to 15 pastors. You can go to our own website and you can go to the podcast section and you can listen to every message that I have ever preached or that anyone else has ever preached that has stood in this pulpit since we moved in this building, since we began recording. You say, well, aren't those good things? Yes, they are tremendous things. But they are detrimental things if it keeps you as a Christian filled with the Spirit from going to the Word of God for yourself. And here when Jesus says, what did Moses command you? It is a lesson within a lesson for us. The scripture is to be our authority. And oh, that we would be like the psalmist, that we would delight in the law of the Lord night and day. That we would put down roots and we would be like trees planted by streams of water. We would bear fruit in season and out of season. Oh, that we would be that way. So Jesus points them back to the Scriptures. What did Moses say? Well, in verse 5, they say, well, or or in verse 4, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce to send her away. Then Jesus asked them a question. He doesn't ask them a question, but he gives them the answer to a question. 
His question, if he were to ask it, would be, well, why did Moses write such a law? Why did Moses have to write such a law? And Jesus answered, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 was the only Old Testament law about divorce. It's the only one. And even in four verses, there's only one command. There's a lot of, if this happens, if this happens, if this happens, if this happens. And the command says, her first husband shall not take her back. There's only one Old Testament law here regarding divorce. And the only reason that Moses gave them that one was because of their hard-hearted rebellion against God's institution of marriage. If you'll remember, all throughout Old Testament history... All throughout, God had said to his people, to the Israelites, do not intermarry. Do not marry women of the foreign lands. Because when you do, they will lead you away from worshiping me, God says. And they will lead you to worship their many false gods. Did they listen? No. Repeatedly, they rejected that that instruction from God and went and married the foreign women of the land. It's in that context that Malachi 2.16 says, I hate divorce. And that verse has been taken out of context and applied in just a blanket way that would actually probably contradict the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. The context of Malachi chapter 2 is when God there is, is referring to them leaving His instruction and marrying these women of foreign lands and leaving the worship of the one true God and then worshiping these false idols up on the hilltops at all of these altars that were all around. And that's why God there says, therefore I hate divorce. We need to realize that divorce is a divine concession to humanity's hard-hearted rebellion. It's a divine concession. I want you to hear that. It is a divine concession to humanity's hard-hearted rebellion. What it means is that It's not part of his original plan. It was not his ideal. God from the beginning did not allow for divorce. Instead, once they ignored his instruction and went off and married the women of the foreign lands, wound up worshiping pagan gods, it was in that that point that he made the provision of divorce. It was a divine concession to their hard-hearted rebellion. Well, the second question here I think we must ask is not only why did Moses have to write such a law, but secondly, what was God's original plan? Jesus, this is the second question that he answers. What was God's original plan? Jesus continues to take them back to the Word. Since there's no other laws concerning divorce, he goes beyond written laws and says, if there is, this is a great principle of hermeneutics or Bible study or Bible interpretation, if there is no written specific commandment about the particular topic that you are searching for, look at the heart of God. Look at His heart. Don't 
Don't jump from there to something that is totally contrary to the very nature and character of God. Because it fits what you want to do. So Jesus here says, since Moses wrote this one law, and it really doesn't answer the question that you are shooting for, let's go back to the heart of God. What was God's original plan? And that's when Jesus says in verse 6, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. God's original plan was for one man and one woman to come together as one. Think about it. Who else was Adam going to marry? Eve comes home one night. I don't know what they lived in. Let's say it's a cave. She's there over the fire. He's been out hunting all day. He brings in whatever he brought in. She cooks it up. She burns it. In that moment, is Adam really going to say, Eve, this is the third time. Three strikes, you're out. Certificate of divorce. You know, I'll go hang out with the hippopotamus, you know. I mean, what's he going to do? There, there is no one else. Unless we think the man is the only one that ever gets fed up. And all the women in the room said, Amen. Who else was there for Eve? I mean, Adam leaving toenail clippings everywhere, and not picking up his laundry and all that sort of thing. I mean, what, you know, who else is she going to go to? This is the original plan of God. He made them male and female. One man, one woman to come together with no end in sight. This rules out homosexuality. This rules out polygamy. But secondly, in that, he has originally designed for them, one man, one woman, to come together. No end in sight. Why? Well, if you go back to Genesis 1.27, the verse that Jesus quotes here, and you read the rest of it, The rest of it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This may be what causes divorce to be so ugly to God. In fact, I think it is. Because marriage was designed to be a reflection of Of his character. Think about it. The Trinity. Don't get hung up on there's three in the Trinity and there's two in a marriage. Don't get hung up on that. I want you to picture the the perfect, unpolluted fellowship that's in that Trinity. Each one distinct, yet one God. Marriage. Two distinct individuals coming together in one flesh. It is meant to be a picture of who he is. And so when a husband or a wife says, you know, I just don't think I love you anymore. I want a divorce. This picture, meant to be the picture of the very character of God, is ripped apart. And it is the opposite 
who God is. And I think that's why God so detests divorce. Thank God He doesn't treat us the way we often treat one another. Thank God that He doesn't trample His covenant with us the way we often trample the covenant of marriage. Praise God. Now that Christ has come, what should our response be? I mean, should we have the attitude of the Ford Motor Company who back in 2006 produced a commercial? In this commercial, there were two parents, two children, and a dog. And the commercial showed this loving family riding around, going to the beach, running with the dog, stopping and having a picnic. And then at the end of the day, the car pulls up to a little apartment and the man gets out of the car And he looks back at his wife and he says, thanks for asking me to go today. She says, no problem. And he gets out, he tells his kids bye, and he goes into his apartment. And Ford Motor Company, in explaining this, here's what their own spokesman said. Divorce is so common that I don't think people view it as sad and depressing anymore. It's on every movie, every TV show. There aren't any more leave-it-to-beaver families around. Another spokesman for Ford Motor Company said, it's a, talking about the commercial, it's a true reflection of the world today. They weren't making any type of social statement with it. Is that the attitude that we're supposed to have? Just take the attitude of Ford Motor Company to say, you know, it's just a part of life. It's normal. It's just what happens these days, so let's just, let's just ignore it. Listen, the church that I came here from, one of the saddest things that ever happened in the church there, and it happened more than once, unfortunately, is we had couples in the church that would separate from one another, be in the midst of going through divorce, and go through a divorce, and what they would do is they would come in to worship on Sunday morning, and they, one would sit over on this side, and the other would sit over on that side. And they wouldn't talk to one another. But they didn't want to give up their church. So they just decided to leave it that way. And no one in the church approached them. No one in the church approached them and said, Is there any way that we can come together and at least seek reconciliation here? Instead, we began to see little pockets of people taking sides. And the church at large just went on like, normal. It's no big thing. It's no big thing for a family within this family to just separate from one another. It's just part of it. Is that the attitude that we should have? Or should we have the attitude of Dr. Keith Abloh? Now, you probably don't know Keith Abloh, but he is a Fox News medical team contributor. And this is what he said in a recent article. Dr. Keith Abloh thinks that marriage is a source of real suffering for the vast majority of married people. As a matter of fact, that is only one of the the accusations Ablo hurls against marriage before eventually calling for its demise. Marriage, he insists, is a dying institution and he celebrates its death. Actress Cameron Diaz shares his, uh, his sentiment when she said recently that marriage is a dying institution. She added, I don't think we should live our lives in relationships based off old traditions that don't suit our world any longer. 
So is this the attitude that we should have? That it is no big deal. It's just part of life. Let's just live and let live. Or should we take this attitude of marriage is outdated. It is unpopular. It is suffering. And it needs to die. Or should we refuse to listen to the rabbis of our day and hold to God's ideal regardless of how outdated or abnormal it may appear? Jesus goes on here and he says, Therefore, this, is, this should be our response. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. I've not done a lot of marital counseling in my years, but I have done some. And I can tell you that more than once, in the few, very few times that I have done it, more than once, a mother-in-law is the issue. Yeah. Um, one of the greatest gifts that I was given in the call to ministry, and I love my mother-in-law. Don't, don't, don't hear me saying that. I have a, I have a very cool mother-in-law. My mother-in-law uh, rides a motorcycle. She, uh, you know, she has taken multiple trips out to uh, out west on her motorcycle and that sort of thing. Two weeks at a time. Very cool mother-in-law. Love her. We get along. She loves power tools and all that kind of stuff. And uh, probably knows more than I do. But you know, I get to hang out with her sometimes. But one of the greatest gifts that I was given in my call to ministry is being removed from being in the same town as my mother-in-law. Now that's going to hit some of you the wrong way. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that that you know newlyweds you should you should just pack up and leave. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what it did for us and my wife would say the same thing, you know, about my family. What it did for us is it kept us in those early years from every time we had a squabble or every time we had an issue from running back to mom and dad. And if you are here today, and we have some people in the room today that are that are engaged, that are headed toward uh, marriage. If you are newlyweds in here today, one of the greatest pieces of advice I'll give you is what Jesus says here is leave your father and your mother. It doesn't mean you have to move out of town. But refuse. Make up your mind that you will not go running to them every time you have an issue. Moms and dads, I know that I'm a young guy, but one of the greatest things that you can do for your kids is to butt out. It's, and I don't want to, I hear some amens here and there, but you know, don't, I don't want to cause divide, all right? That's not the point here. I, this is to be done with love. You love one another. You love being with each other, but give each other that space that Jesus is talking about here. Can we do that? Amen. Then he goes on and he says, and he should hold fast to his wife. It's the, there's, the word here is the word used to talk about concrete. That it is to be permanent. That you hold fast. That burning of the dinner is nothing compared to this concrete. That even... I'm really not qualified to talk about it, but even the tragedy of losing a child together would be nothing compared to the concrete that holds the two of you together. 
He goes on, he says the two shall become one flesh. What he's talking about there is there's this spiritual union that happens between a man and a woman that doesn't happen with anybody else. But it also is a reference here to the fact that when a, when a husband and wife come together, that the intention is that they will have kids. The Old Testament talks about that the re, what God was seeking in this is he was seeking godly offspring. We will expand our nursery. If we need to. Wouldn't it be great to have to expand the nursery, you know, for that? And then he goes on and he says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The point here is that this is a work of God. That this is not a work of man. How many wedding ceremonies have you stood in? I'm going to finish with this. I'm not going to make it all the way through to verses 10 and 12. And you're going to say, well, that's what I wanted to get to. But, but you've heard the, the spirit of it, Okay. How many wedding ceremonies have you stood and watched? And you knew as you, as you, or not stood, but you sat there and you watched. How many, you knew, watching, this won't last. I mean, it's not going to last. You know why? Because most of them going into it, seeing it as something that they are doing. Not as something that God is doing. And by the way, this doesn't just apply to Christian marriages. This is to the institution of marriage. This is going back to Genesis 1. This is, this is pre-Messiah. This is a humanity thing. What God has joined together that no man separate. I sit sometimes and I do premarital counseling and I, and I try to I try to really get to the, to the bottom line issues and I try to be very frank with people and I try to ask the hard questions. I try to get them to discuss these things that maybe will come up and trip them later on. And I, there are times, there's been at least once where I have had to say in the midst of that, I can't do your wedding. Because it was obvious that they were going into this thing already with the door open on the back, back side of the house. But joyfully, there have also been times where I have sat through that premarital counseling and I have watched this couple come together and they are, they are individually and together seeking the Lord. And they are building this marriage on the Lord. And they understand that if they neglect the Lord then they will build the house and it will come to ruin. But if they will sign the contract and say, God, you fill it in. One of the greatest things my wife and I decided very early on, and we dated for three months. I asked her to marry me and then we were engaged for five months and we were married. Eight months. I mean, and, and, and you know, there was no reason we were getting married. Let me just say it that way, okay? Other than we loved each other. And we knew. We just, we just loved each other. And one of the things that we determined right up front in that premarital counseling, Rick Fleener at the um, Cumberland College in Williamsburg, Kentucky, sitting up in his office, one of the things that we discussed and determined we would never do is we would never say divorce. We would never threaten it. And there's some times we walk around and go, hmm, 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 you know. (laughs) 
But I thank God that I have a wife that has, with all my toenail clippings and everything else, has refused to use that word. Today, there are a lot of you that are probably in this room that you can't say that. You have come through divorce. You may be in the middle of a divorce. Um, You may be headed toward it and you know it. You may be heading into marriage. There's different things going on in this room. One thing I can tell you is that what has happened in the past is in the past. And if you would confess that to God as what it is, and you would repent of that, and you would turn to Him and say, God, forgive me and make me clean, I know that you will. And today, maybe as we open this time of response up, maybe that's what you need to do, is you need to come and just, you've never done it. It was years ago, but you've never reconciled with you and God on this, and you need to come and do that. Then today, maybe the day that you come and do that. Maybe today you're here and you're heading toward marriage. And, you know, you say, we really want to get started on the right foot. You may want to just come as a couple and pray. Whatever you need to do, do it today. But I'll close with this statement at the end of the last section. Maybe I'll get to the last section one day. I want to remind you of God's character. That Jesus is the bridegroom that holds fast to his bride despite all the times that she has left him and sold herself to other lovers. And that should cause us reason to praise today. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you today, and God, we, we come to this issue that is maybe raw and painful. But God, we ask that you would work in the middle of it. God, that for whatever is going on in the individual minds and hearts of people in this room, God, that you would speak to them, that you would show them what they need to do. God, that they would respond in obedience, they would not harden their heart, but God, that they would respond to you in obedience. God, today there may be... uh, someone who's headed toward marriage, God, today, or or brand new in marriage, God, we pray today that you would, would strengthen their bond, that they would pursue you more than they pursue one another. And God, as a result of doing that, that you would let them find themselves closer to one another than they ever have been. And God, there may be someone here today who marriage and divorce is not an issue But they need to come to you, turning from their sins, trusting you alone as their only hope of salvation. They want to come to you as the bridegroom that will hold fast to them, that will never turn them away. God, I pray today that if that's the case, that you would draw those people to yourself. Whatever it is that you want to do, Lord, you don't need our permission, but God, we implore you to do it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.